0: What's funny is like I was a nerdy introvert, so the fact that I would become an effective promoter would have been shocking to most people (laughs) I grew up with.
1: You're listening to Hawk Talk,
0: a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman.
1: All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Andrew Yang. How are you? Hey, Eric. I'm doing great. Great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, great to have you. So to kick it off, to get started, I assume you, you know, you're in the delivery room, you come into this world, and you decide to start talking about how we need, re, need to reorganize politics and get right into it. Pretty fair, right? I assume it was immediate that you wanted politics. <laughs> yes.
0: No, very likely <laughs> not. I know, obviously, you're kidding. Yeah. Uh, so I was born in Schenectady, New York, to a couple of Taiwanese immigrants who were lab... Well, my dad was a lab geek. He was a physicist at GE and then IBM. And my mom worked at a local university in upstate New York. As a child of immigrants, I and mean, we have a pretty simple vision of what we're supposed to do, which is uh, get good grades, get a good job, uh, try and make a place for yourself in this country. Uh, my parents never talked about American politics. I actually talked to them more recently. I was like, hey, did you vote? I don't want to out my parents, as, but they, they were just like, we didn't really know what was going on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> politically. So there, was, there were not conversations with the Yang household about that, that kind of thing.
1: Got it. And so early on, I guess, what what were you interested in? Like, how was the upbringing with your dad being on the tech side? mom being a teacher like tell me more about that and so uh, we were you
0: know it was like the 80s in upstate new york i was one of the only non-white kids at school. so what what were like the influences you know at that time it was james bond movies so i wanted <laughs> to be james bond it was the the warriors which you know so i i, I didn't, don't think that made me want to be a gangster <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was was something of a monoculture at that point, which I kind of miss, you know, remember when the video came out. I don't know how old you are, Eric, but like, you know, all of these seminal cultural moments that everyone shared uh, back to the future, the karate kid, all the 80s movies, they all were like an enormous deal to me as a you know, a young kid. And I I felt this real both struggle and desire to be American, whatever the heck that meant. Uh, And I I think what that meant to me at the time was trying to be good at sports, which I was not because I'd skipped a grade. And so I was always smaller and scrawnier than everyone else.
1: Exact same story. I get it. I was always a head shorter than everyone else. (laughs) Yeah. But for whatever reason, that
0: seemed like such an important part of identity. Yeah. Um, So I wrestled for a year and was terrible. I tried to play basketball and slowly got better played high school tennis as like a, a way just to be on a team
1: yep got it and like growing up you're interested as you said in the more pop culture moments but did you like other than wanting to be James Bond did you have like some early on career aspirations or anything that kind of indicated where you wanted to go like where was the first step that you like started getting interested in politics, so to speak. Uh, well,
0: at some point, some people told me that I should consider going to law school because what, what was it? Like, I like to write. And so people, you know, no one says, oh, you should be a writer because that's not yeah. really like a good idea. <laughs> so, you know, especially if your parents are Asian. So I think that translated to be like, oh, you should think about law school. Yeah. And, and so then I said, okay, maybe I'll do
1: that. And, and when was that? Like, when did people start saying you should go to law school? How old were you?
0: You know, I, I, I won like a writing contest in maybe seventh or eighth grade. It wasn't anything no. special. It was just like the school and they're like, oh, good essay, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, I, and then I joined the debate team in high school and I did really well. I actually went to the world championships in 1992 Yeah. So at that point, people were like, "Hey, you should consider law school because it seemed like I was good at both writing and talking." (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Which which was like, "Oh, like that's cool." You know, uh, especially because you know, like my Asian parents were like, "Well, you're definitely not stopping at college. So you're going to keep going." And what are you going to do? So when I said I'm going to go to law school, I kind of like you know got them off my back.
1: And what'd you do for undergrad?
0: I studied economics and political science, the pretty basic stuff.
1: So I'm curious what drove that, because that sounds like there were obviously you took political science. There were already some interest in political science.
0: Uh, that's, that's a good point. Uh, well, I started out as an English major and just like it sucked. So I said, like, let's not <laughs> do that anymore. Uh, and then I took an economics class and a political science class. But I like these better. And so I, I decided to pursue them both and figure I, I'd figure out which one I liked more. And then I just ended up, you know, like finishing majors in both. There was a. And where'd you go? Where'd you go to school? I went to Brown. Okay. Which is a very very liberal school. I think people know that. Yeah. So like I, you know, like imagined myself to be very liberal too. And then I also took a bunch of classes in something called American Civilization that I think they've renamed since. So that there was actually a course called Pop Culture in the U.S. So I I really liked that stuff. You know, it's like uh, they actually had you read a romance novel, which I enjoyed.
1: so it was really like you it sounds like you always had this affinity for american pop culture like yeah yeah that's kind of, i mean i'm yeah. like
0: an enormous movie buff yeah. Uh, all of like the, the sci-fi and superhero movies. I grew up reading comic books as a kid. I played Dungeons and Dragons and read comic books as a kid. So I was a bit of yeah. a, a geek that way. And so when the superhero movies started coming out, it was freaking mind blowing, you know, like, yeah, you and you're like, like, they actually made an X-Men movie. And it's pretty good before they yeah. that. I mean, you know, the first couple were <laughs> mind blowing. Um, and so that entire arc, you know, I've been very into it. I mean, I still, you know, like still, I still watch the last Batman movie in the theater, and stuff like that.
1: And, and so, yeah, I'm curious how that tied in. Did it. Did you feel like that tied in or was it just like you had that interest, but you were also professionally more interested in getting into law on that side of things? Like, what, how did that I kind of it, it your does career?
0: tie in in a particular way, which is like, I, so I was an unhappy lawyer for five months and I said to my parents hey I, I didn't dream about becoming a scribe when i was a kid like i dreamt about yeah. going in the woods and killing something and uh, they were like you know don't understand what you're talking about but <laughs> like, like, uh, you know that there's this sense that you're supposed to try and do something you care about or that's important and i didn't see that in my day job so i thought well i i should at least give this a try like it, it would be lame to not try so i quit my law firm job when I was 25 and tried to start a company. Uh And and then that company failed. It was a dud. Um,
1: What was it? What was the company?
0: It's called StarGiving.com. It was a celebrity affiliated nonprofits, uh, raising money on the internet. Okay. You'd you'd, uh, click on a button and then be shown sponsors that donated to a celebrity's cause. And then the celebrity meets one of the people that clicks. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, now an early Omaze. Yeah, it was it was an earlier version of Omaze um in yeah. dot com one point It didn't work. The dot com bubble burst and no one cared about our little company. But I, I learned a lot. I then worked at another company that ran out of money and then another company that didn't reach its goal. So I was like rattling around the startup scene for years yeah. unsuccessfully. And during that time, you know, it was was a struggle uh, because a lot of my friends who'd stayed in the law were doing well, and I wasn't really doing that well, honestly. And so, you know, my confidence was up and down. Um, I, you know, I I, um, went to the gym a lot during that time because that was one way I could feel good about myself. Yeah. Um, So this is my, you know, late twenties. So between like twenty five and thirty one, I would throw parties on weekends at. Bars and clubs downtown. And this was after 9 11. So downtown was very desolate. So they were very eager yeah. to have anyone who could bring people. Yeah. And I, I don't even think I was necessarily like extra popular at that time. It was just that, you know, I knew enough people that knew enough people, particularly in the Asian party scene, that if you just said, like, hey, there's going to be a party at this place, then you could get hundreds of people to show up.
1: N- nice community side of it. And so, and was the party thing like you just needed to blow off steam because you were stressed out about what was going on professionally or was it just fun? Like, like out know, of that like
0: yeah. a, a friend at the time, another startup guy, said to me, like, hey, how do we be cool in our late twenties? And I was like, Well, in theory, you'd have a party at your apartment, but like I live in a you know, tiny apartment, so that's off the table. Yeah. So so then you would just have a bar or club do it. And he's like, Oh, we should do that. And I was like, Okay. And I, I also felt this need because I'd started a, a business that flopped. Um, and so I thought, like, I want to start a business that succeeds, even if it's on very modest terms. Sure. You know, it's not going to pay my rent, but like, it's going to be a success in terms of getting people together, having a good time, making a, a bit of money, getting free booze, yeah. whatever it was. So it, it was like a way to, to build some experience, some leadership skills. I mean, it's funny to think about a party network that way, but I, I will say that yeah. if you look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs out there at some point in time, they were promoters because the skills are essentially entirely analogous Um, one person that comes to mind for me is mark cuban like he owned a bar in college and like you know just had had a lot of people come through it builds like a certain type of courage to put yourself out there and and like also some thick skin because there are always some assholes who show up to a party and like
1: it's so true, and I, I it's funny, I think like the the key characteristic of an entrepreneur is promoter, like you have to be able to promote your what you're doing and be able to sell what you're doing you have we always talk about with like younger companies that approach us to work with us. it's you know you have to get this going on your own first, and being able to promote it, sell it is like the most basic characteristic you need from an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, uh, completely. Uh, And what's funny is like I was a nerdy introvert. So the fact that I would become an effective promoter would have been shocking to most people (laughs) I grew up with. But
1: yeah, you you do what you're driven to do. So through that, you get through your 20s, you're promoting parties. uh, You're also working on different startups. Where was there kind of a turning point from there? I guess what happened next?
0: Yeah. And so when, when I was 30, 31, I had been teaching at a test prep company part time for six or seven years and the founder approached me about becoming his business partner and then taking over the business as ceo because he wanted to leave to start a charter school for underprivileged kids very wholesome yeah and so i took him up on that and became the ceo of a company manhattan prep that then grew to become number one in the u.s and was bought by a public company in 2009
1: so that what was that timeline how when did you take it over
0: I took it over in 2006, I ran it for four years because it was acquired in December nine. And then I stayed on as president of the division for another year and a half. Uh So it was, so that's when I think I found a lot of myself professionally and personally, because the business when I joined was very small. So there, you know, it wasn't like, you know, like I was just stepping into something that was a sure thing. But I had really good instincts for that business because I'd been an instructor for a number of years. And I'd also been someone who'd applied to, you know, grad school and the rest of it. Yeah. So we, and I really liked caring about the teachers and the students. Our claim to fame was that our turnover among instructors was literally like 5% that of the national companies Wow! because we paid four times more. But I also invested in culture and like a liaison and annual gatherings that we'd pay for your travel to, which was like unheard of for a company in our space. Yeah. yeah. So those were great times. And I also met my now wife during those years. It's tough when you're a startup guy and stuff's not working to feel settled and be in positive relationships. Yeah. And when your startup has like some stability, then you become more stable. So I, I feel for people so on path because it's tough. You know, it's like, yeah. I see it all the time. I'm super grateful to my wife. I mean, she did not know what she bargained for when she decided to <laughs> get together with me because, you know, when she and I met, I was like the head of this little education company. And she's like, oh, it's cool. And then, you know, little did she know that I'd run for president later.
1: Yeah. Little yeah, did she and- you know. Yeah, I mean, I think Before that's what we all
0: sign up for. Just don't tell your partner what lies ahead. <laughs>
1: was that an aspiration at that point? Did you even think about it at all? Political aspirations? Like, when did those start coming into your head? I had um, a list of life's goals, and one of the goals was elevate a political
0: figure nationally. So it was not be one; <laughs> it was like just okay. find someone who because that, that seemed like an intelligent thing. Is like, look, yeah. I don't want to do it, but if you find someone else who would do the same thing as you do, then just as good, right? So just yep. do
1: that. And when did that? come into play. Like when did you put that on that life goal? Uh
0: that was in my mid twenties. Like I always thought, <laughs> well, I can at least help someone else who's gonna do something good.
1: Yeah. So you did have an interest in politics by your mid 20s. Got it. And so, okay, so you sell this education company, run it for another year and a half, and then you just leave? Or did you have another plan or something you wanted to get into?
0: Then I did something very, very strange, which is I started a nonprofit called Venture for
1: America that I uh, ran for six and a
0: half years.
1: Uh And And did you make like, was the exit meaningful to the point that like, you're like, I'm good. I had my exit. I don't need to worry about working. Or was it?
0: It it was, uh, you know, it it was in the seven figures. So like, I felt okay. good for at least a particular period, yeah you know, it wasn't like never work or a day in right. your life, but it was like, look, I should probably try and figure out something positive yeah, right. to do. So, I mean, I could have tried to, to, uh, join or start another business. And I dare say that, you know, like people would have been interested, but I had this idea to, to help train the next generation of entrepreneur because I thought that our country was going into a ditch in large part because all of our top educational products were becoming bankers, consultants, lawyers or working in big tech. And I yep. thought that, well, I'd rather have more of them startups in Detroit, Baltimore, New Orleans, Cleveland, Birmingham, St. Louis. A lot of places I hadn't been before. It was like a very wholesome idea. Yeah. Um, but but I, I already sensed that there was this brain drain and I was like, well if you could help reverse the brain drain, then that's like a, a win. Yeah. Um, so I, I did that between two thousand eleven and two thousand seventeen. It was a very big huh. part of my life. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I invested some of my own money but mainly I invested my time we grew from nothing to uh you know like I think the the budget was like six and a half million dollars when I I stepped away Uh, and so we you know we trained hundreds thousands of of young people which was like a lot like I, I would go to our training camp every year and i was kind of like the head of it de facto we have instructors come in so uh, i had children around this time so i'd like bring the kids and like you know it's like the the whole thing was very very wholesome and beautiful love venture for america anyone who you know it's like hopefully some people here have had contact with venture for america in some way Um, if you run a company in one of these cities, I just mentioned, or other cities, like you might be able to hire a couple of VFAers, so that that would be a big win. So I did that for a number of years. And then when uh, 2016, the presidential race rolled around, I was like, No, you know, I I honestly was like, No way this guy wins. And then he did win. I was like, Oh, my gosh, like, we really need to think bigger. So that's what got me to run myself was like thinking a lot of people I think after Trump won this thought like, Oh, I should do more. And then in my case, it was like, Oh, I should run and and I thought that I should run in part because I'd met President Obama I'd met President Bush you know Junior W I'd met President Clinton and frankly none of them were like oh these guys are like so much uh you know smarter than me and like well, yeah it's like they're just dudes you know and so yeah, yeah like they like they like oh you know, like I can do what they
1: do. I mean, it's like, you know, yeah.
0: for the most part, just
1: going around talking to people. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. Like, that's something I think a lot of people, when they start to, whether you're an entrepreneur, you get on the world and you start to meet these like, larger than life figures and you realize they're not larger than life. They're just other people. And like, I no one's that
0: smart, me, of course. I mean, in, in my case, you know, you feel like you're in the presence of something unusual. I'm kidding. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you come in with that bravado.
1: But yeah, oh, it's. In person, you would see, I'm like, seven foot two. No, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's so true. It's 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 cool. Like, I've seen that a lot on the business side of things where you meet some of these, you know, billionaires, et cetera. And you realize, like, yeah, no, they just mostly got lucky. Like, there's a few people out there that are just seem to be incredibly brilliant. Most people picked something and it happened to be the right timing and the right opportunity. Don't get me wrong. They still took action, which is part of it. But a lot of times success or whatever comes from being in the right place, right time. Same thing with you look at the Clintons, the Bushes, like, there's a lot of ties between those families and where they've been in the lineage behind it and what they were born into. Like there's a lot that, you know, of unforeseen things and things that, and even forcing things that go into it that aren't just like this is the most brilliant person in the country, so they ran for president and won.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the great fortunes of of the age too, I think Elon's singular in that like the yeah, exactly. Doing, if he wasn't doing like maybe no one else would be doing. Um, yeah. but but was there going to be a Facebook? It's like yeah, you would say there yeah. there is going to end up being a social uh, um, media network that looks like that, and so the person that presides over that ends up with you know a certain level of wealth and prominence. You you could say like they there was going to be a mega online retailer in the form of Amazon. Yeah. Now they've done like a much better job of morphing and getting into more things. But, you know, so there is a combination. I mean, these people are phenomenally talented in some cases, but it's also, you know, it's like if I, you know, I think about this for myself sometimes, Eric, and, uh, you know, we're like, you know, a thing, I suppose. And I don't know if I, like, I don't think I had ambitions in this area, um, but there, there are different people that, come to conclusions at different times where even when I was planning to run for president, and this is in my book, like the original name for the campaign was UBI 2020. And then because I was like, well, it's just about the ideas, but like people don't yeah. uh, care as much about ideas as they do about people. You know, you kind of yeah. need a person to hang it on. Um, and this is what entrepreneurs find too. is like, you think it's not about you, but it ends up being about you. And yeah. Even if you don't want it to be about you.
1: Yeah, that's totally fair. And yeah, people, the face of the company matters externally, internally, even more. Like when you're like, no, just work for the company. Talk to your manager, do your job. Like, don't worry about what I'm doing. Like, that's not a thing when you're running a business. They yeah. care about every little thing you're doing.
0: Yeah. If it's a startup and it's in person, I liken it yeah. uh, sort of to being in a family where it's like, if, if like, I, I, you know, I have two kids now. And if I say, hey, do this. And then I do the opposite. It's like, no one's going to listen to what, you know, my kids No, yep. like, oh, you know, like if dad's on his phone all the time and then dad's like, don't go on screens, they'll be like, what the heck are you talking about? Like <laughs>
1: all day. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yep. son. <laughs> yep. It's happened to me. This meeting's mandatory. And then I don't show up and everyone's like, what the fuck? <laughs> so yeah, totally get that. And so, all right. So you, you're running your nonprofit and then Trump wins. And you so did you immediately go, this is ridiculous. Like, I guess I have to put my name in the hat. Like it was just because you had no prior political side, right?
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd read a, a book called Raising the Floor by a guy named Andy Stern, uh, who said that we're automating away the jobs and we should adopt a universal basic income. And yeah. the, the end of his book said, like, someone should run for president on this. And, and I read his book and was like, yeah, he's right. Someone should do that. And then after Trump won, I thought, okay, someone should run for president on universal basic income. So then my my next move was to go around to everyone I knew who was into universal basic income in Silicon Valley being like, hey, anyone running for president on this? Because someone should. Yeah. And and then everyone's like, no. And I was like, I guess I will then. And then I had lunch with Andy Stern and checked with him and said, well, is anyone running for president on this? Because I knew. Given who he was, that if someone was running, they would have talked to him. And he said, no. And then at that point, I was like,
1: "Okay, I'll do it then.
0: Uh, So, you know, like that. uh, I I had that lunch with Andy. It's
1: like uh, spring 2017. Okay. And when you decided to do this, did you like have did you were you convinced you were like, did you feel confident in the ability to win or was this more to get a message out? Like, what was the motivation to go do that? Were you like, oh, I could totally win just using this platform or. Was it, I think this will be a great way to get that message out, win or not?
0: Yeah, so I I wanted to be a credit to the cause, uh, and I I looked at how much money... 2016 Republican candidates had, had raised and yeah. I was like, I was like, I want to beat like, you know, like half a dozen of these dudes. Like I, I had in my mind's eye, I was like, if, if I raise $10 million to make this case, like I will have done something very, very positive, And that's like a fine way to spend a couple of years of my life. Um, yeah. I ended up raising 40 and, uh, you know, and wow. like, in, in going pretty far, but I, I had in my mind's eye, I said to someone, it's like, you know, raise 10 million, like, uh, like that, that would make me feel like we got the megaphone out.
1: Got it. And so, and so it was that it was you got it was about the megaphone more than like you wanted to actually be the sitting president. I assume if it happened, it happened. But the motivation for this was really to get that message out. Is that fair? Yeah, totally.
0: I, I yeah. didn't expect to win. Yeah, got so, it. I mean, anyone who got behind me, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we did genuinely give ourselves a chance to win. But you know, when I what I set out on it, I wasn't like I'm going to be president, like you know. And, yeah, like, like you know, it's was just like, hey, we're going to do a ton of good.
1: No, that makes sense, and it seems smart. I mean, you definitely got the message out there. I think it's a lot more topical now, and like going in it with realistic expectations, like because I think a lot of people go to this and raise a ton of money, and they don't get out of it what they want to because their expectation was they're going to step in from the outside and be the next president and. I watched that even, you know, and I I liked some of what he stood for, but Michael Bloomberg, like they started late, they raised a ton of money, he spent a ton of money, but they never really got their message out. And I don't know really what they were going for. And then it just fizzled out. And it's like that was, you know, there's there's ways to do it that you can still accomplish something that you can walk away and have production without actually necessarily getting the seat, which I think is Great.
0: Yeah. And and so that that does lead me to the the next step, which has been fascinating. So I come off the trail in 2020. And I'm like, okay, we got the message out. Uh, Why do I still feel so negatively about the trajectory of the country? And after digging into it, I realized the problem is the political system, that we have this duopoly that doesn't actually solve any problems. Yeah, uh, Each side can just look at the other side and be like, look how bad they are. And so you have this really polarized yeah. culture. You have this dysfunctional legislature. And so I said, well, like, how do we fix that? And what I realized is that we have to move to multi-party system, at least three parties, ideally more like five parties. And what, what's fascinating about this, Eric, is that none of this stuff's written down. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. in the Constitution about a number of parties. They actually hated political parties. <laughs> Yep. Uh, at, at that time among the founders so then the democratic party and the republican party just kind of rose up and divvied everything up and invented themselves but they're, they're like no rules around it and so you know started a new third party the forward party which i dare say is going to wind up being very resonant with entrepreneurs and business people who aren't super ideological and just want to get stuff done and you know are pragmatic yeah. so uh, that, that's what it's led that's what it's led me to and one of the mistakes i made i make this i've made this Mistake actually, any number of times in my career, um, is that I, I thought when running for president, I was like, okay, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, it's like, okay, I've got like three or four years of running for president. And then, you know, world's my oyster. Um, But but what you don't realize is that after you do it, then you don't just, you know, walk away, like you have this new insight, you have a new network or following, and then you're like, okay, like, I I need to keep working at solving the problem. I mean, I I ran for president in part because I started a nonprofit that was trying to create jobs, you know, six and a half years before that, you know, so like, it, it just leads you to different solutions. Yeah, you'd think I'd learn at some point, but I never do.
1: it <laughs> all leads into each other. I mean, it, you know, you you also have before your nonprofit, you were in education, and now you're develop you're still developing young people to try to do things with your nonprofit. And then you went from that, you realized how the, the problems they were dealing with were well, not just education, but other types of opportunity. As you said, jobs are being outsourced and automated to a, at a rate that we're not going to be able to have enough job replacement at some point, you know, doesn't seem like a problem today, but pretty soon it will be. And they talk about the truckers. And as soon as we have automated trucks, like how many jobs go away just because of that alone, like, Three and it's half be... million, but who's counting? Who... There you go. I'm, I'm on with the expert. <laughs> so, and tell me, I, I want to take a step back real quick on the sort of campaign trail, et cetera. Like what were some things that surprised you about that? What was it about? Like when you went to run and you went to go speak, were there things that like, obviously we all watch it on the news. We watch speeches. We see people traveling around, you know, as they say, kissing babies, shaking hands. But what was like, what surprised you about that whole period that you're like oh this is a little different than i thought
0: what surprised me is just how big a role the media plays Uh where like i I could spend three days in south carolina and the only thing anyone would care about was me doing the cupid shuffle in a community (laughs) center yeah, and Like, you know, I went to like, you know, 12 places after that, like a Latino yeah. community, a domestic violence, it doesn't matter, you yeah. know, like, like that, that there's like a, a massive uh, funhouse mirror effect going on. It's really powerful. I felt really bad for a lot of the other presidential candidates because we'd all show up to this thing and just no one would care about what a lot of them were doing. Yeah. And, you know, it's like one of these forums, like all the major candidates show up to the forums, all the minor candidates show up to the forums, like the forums didn't move the needle for, you know, just about anyone unless something like remarkable happened. Yeah. Um, and, and so there, there's yeah, it, like that, that these are some of the things that surprised me, like you, you imagine it's like a, a little bit more objective of a process, but there there's very little objectivity.
1: I mean, and not to get too political, but it seems like that's where Trump mastered attention like he was doing things that got the media to talk about him every day versus anything else to do with that campaign and it was you know that has become one way to win is to just get all the media attention on you
0: yeah you know and i i had a much more benign version of that yeah like during the presidential where it was like cupid shuffle crowd surf you know
1: yeah yeah you were the young exciting candidate talking about more modern things is what it seemed to come off as Yeah. Whereas
0: Trump, but, uh, and Trump mastering that particular dynamic, it's going to return when he returns, which is probably going to be in in this next cycle. Um, So one of my great efforts uh, is to try and reduce the chances of Trump winning. And I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think the Democratic Party is in position just to beat him. No. yeah I, I think that there there's going to need to be a different political dynamic either a unity ticket or a third party candidate that siphons support away from trump now i may not be that candidate because my supporters tend to skew young but i i'm uh looking to elevate that candidate if it's not
1: me and do you think that that can happen like that we're at a i mean obviously in some ways it needs to but the the unity ticket i'm always curious about it sounds like there's some people on the Republican and Democratic side that both sides can be okay with, so to speak, that could maybe bridge that gap. And that unity ticket could be something really compelling. But do you think given the nature of the polarization of politics, like that they anyone wouldn't take that chance that a political candidate, they don't seem to be big risk takers?
0: Well, you know, I talked to folks in DC. And if Trump becomes the nominee, there will be interest in a unity ticket, certainly from the Republican side, because there are a lot okay. of Republicans who are not Excited about Trump at all. Right. And uh, now Democrats is a different dynamic, but I think you could get an interested Democrat as well. So it's, I think it's going to be on the table if Trump is the nominee, which I expect.
1: And is that, that's a one of just with talking to someone that knows this stuff, I'm curious, is that a possibility in terms of on the Democratic side, you've got an incumbent, you've got Joe Biden, and I'm assuming he's not stepping down. I don't know how that works. If, I don't know if we've had precedent that the incumbent just goes, no, I'm okay, go ahead and someone else run. But,
0: Oh, yeah yeah the, so there have been instances where the incumbent has stepped aside and said hey, okay. one termer. For for Joe the primary issue is his age and his health. Yeah. He'll turn 82 in 2024. Yeah. And so you have to know that he's probably not going to finish the second term if he goes up again and yeah. so you know that introduces another question too which is that people aren't that excited about Kamala she Right. Five points worse than Joe, so you're like, yeah. well, if we sign up for Joe again. What we're really getting is President Harris sometime in you know the the not so distant future. So that there are a bunch of issues. What I'm hearing is that Joe Joe thinks he has to run if it's Trump because he thinks
1: he's the only one who can defeat Trump. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, which is where it gets worrisome because I don't know that he can again because exactly what you just said. Both of them are getting into the point of geriatrics that it's like, (laughs) I
0: mean, Trump Trump will be 77. Yeah, Joe will be 82. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, listening to that, a lot of people listening to this is like, if you had a credible third party or independent or unity ticket where the people were like under the age of 70, you be like, I'd probably prefer that. Yeah. <laughs> the fact is 50% of Americans aren't wouldn't be excited about either Trump or Biden.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Is it 50? I would assume it is actually even higher than that, honestly. You know,
0: it's, it, it's tough to parse out the numbers, but it, it's sure. 50 plus, yeah. you know, may, maybe 57.
1: Was yeah, I got it. And so I'm curious. So you're building out the forward party. Like, what's next for you? What do, what do you kind of, you, yeah. I know so far you've kind of fallen into it that you haven't, not quite fallen into it, but you, you didn't predict to be running for president when you started the venture side. So now that you've started forward, it. what do you want to see the next five years? What are you hoping for? Is it that third party starts to come up or what? what is exciting to you?
0: Yeah, it, it, it's good fun. So. I've been making common cause with other third party organizations and efforts and leaders. So that's the libertarians, uh, you know, it's uh, folks mm-hmm. like the Serve America movement and the Renew America movement. And, and so we're coming together because we see how bad it's getting. And so many Americans just want a choice that if we can get them a, a choice, that then I think we'll have the opportunity to transform American politics. And if you look back yeah. in American history, there's been a reorientation in periods like this one where, you know, the like... Abraham Lincoln was a third party candidate when he won in 1860. He won with 39.8% of the vote. Now, most people don't realize that because you think, you know, Honest Dave, one of the greatest presidents, if not the greatest president. Yep. Um, but the Republican Party was brand new at that time. He won yeah. in a four candidate race with less than 50% of the vote. Wow.
1: Got it. Um, and, and,
0: and then when he ran again in, in 64, he appointed a Democrat as his vice president, as his running mate. So there was a unity ticket. Yeah. So, so unprecedented things have been, have, have actually been very precedented. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just that we're conditioned to think that it has to be this R or this D, even though most of us don't like that that system. 62% of Americans want a choice. I know there are a lot of uh, entrepreneurs listening to this. If you were an entrepreneur and you came upon a marketplace and 62% of people wanted an alternative to the two providers, you would start a third provider immediately. Um, yeah. Which is what I've done with the forward party. The question is whether enough people will invest time and energy to to have us grow at the rate that we need to. But I think it, I think the answer is yes, because we you have so many people just throwing their hands up in disgust at the, the current environment and the system.
1: Yep. No, couldn't agree more. So last question for you, for someone trying to pursue their dreams and just go for it. I mean, you're a guy that literally just went for it. You ran for president on a partially a whim. Like you're just like, all right, I'm going to do this. It wasn't a life calling. It wasn't something you spent 20 years prepping for. What would be your advice for someone else that go, that wants to pursue their dreams, that wants to go for something? I think a lot of people stand in their own way. What's like the one thing you either wish you were told or you were told that really helped you get there? So the, the thing that I would say to folks, there are a few things I would say.
0: Number one is that anytime I've gone off on one of these journeys, whether it's start my first company or Mm -hmm. go parties uh, or run for president or whatever it is, Uh, you end up building new relationships by virtue of what you're doing, but you also end up losing relationships, which is something that I never expected. And let's say you start a company and you go to your friends and family and be like, hey, I'm doing this thing. And then some people that are close to you just don't help you at all. Yeah. That affects your relationship with them, you know, mm-hmm. a human being. But you end up forming really, really important new bonds with other people. So uh, what I would say, number one is expect to gain new relationships and lose others. Uh-huh. And if you go in with that expectation, then it's very, very helpful. Uh, the, the other thing I'd say is that your ability to both learn from uh, and bounce back from setbacks is much higher than you might ever imagine. Uh, you know, like when my first company failed, like it felt like the end of the world, but then you know, twelve months later, I'm doing something else, and like no one looks at you and thinks like, "Oh, you're a failure." Like uh, it, it's that like you did this thing and it was interesting, and you learned something, and you you end up getting this kind of resilience from it. Uh, I think for three or four years after my first company went under, anything I did, I was like, "Well, it's not as bad as that," or like, "Well, yeah. you know, like I you know came back from that," and that ends up pushing you forward in really interesting ways you know the the third thing i'd say is that you wind up with better relationships if you're doing things you care about and and like the the folks i knew who also failed during that you know dot-com bubble in like the early 2000s 90% of them went on to do something really remarkable just because they'd put themselves out there and then you kind of learn the hard way. But then you're a part of like the next wave and you have some friends you can draw on. So those are some of the things I'd say is that expect to, to gain and lose some relationships. Know that you actually can bounce back from just about anything within, you know, within reason. And, uh, and the third is that like the folks you meet, regardless of whether they succeed or fail, like the, this first time, like a lot of them will end up doing remarkable things. And so it, it isn't always necessarily on you. Like if your things have um one of your friends will like be like, hey, I'm doing this thing. And then they'll call you up. Yep. You, like you don't need to be the CEO and founder of everything, you know? Yep. That's one of the big lessons of my, of some of my experiences. Like I'm very happy to come and be your lieutenant for a, a while on this thing. It doesn't all need to be, you know, like, my jam.
1: Yep. No, great advice, Andrew. And this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk.
0: No problem, man. Best of luck. Love entrepreneurs. You know, yep. like entrepreneurs build the future. And, you know, hopefully people still see me as just like a, an entrepreneur who's trying to solve problems in our political system, in our country. You know, it's like, it turns out that there aren't that many of us. And a lot of the yep. folks that are doing it, you mentioned Bloomberg and, and the rest of it. It's like, they come in at a certain height and experience and they, they have like a different perspective. I think I'm still, you know, gritty enough where I can like put my shoulder to the
1: grindstone for a period of years. Yep, which we need. I mean, we just talked about the elderly getting into president all the time. Like it wasn't, it's not always been that way. We need people that can grind and work a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like uh, those, I thought that was part of my identity too. It was like, you know, I'm like the Asian entrepreneur. It's like, if there's anything I should be able to do, it's uh, work hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Taking advantage of the right stereotypes. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to Hawk Talk.